Hello, this is Toward a More Perfect Union. I'm Frank Falvey, your host, and with us today is Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Dr. Natalia Linos, PJ, Executive Director of hey, Frank, and Representative Jeff Roy. And Jeff, we have a special guest today, a colleague of yours and a neighbor of Franklin. Could you please introduce our special guest? Sure. Thank you, Frank, and thank you, Pete, and the rest of the team here. Glad to be here and uh, introduce uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Representative Sean Dooley. He's uh, from Norfolk, Massachusetts, and he's been uh, with us in the Massachusetts House of Representatives uh, when he was elected in a special election in January of 2014. Before that, he served as the uh, town clerk in Norfolk, and uh, he's uh, serving on the Joint Committee on Economic Development, which has a major bill uh, in process, uh, the Joint Committee on um, uh, Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy, which has a major bill under consideration right now, and uh, the Joint Committee on Financial Services, which is uh, quiet right now. Uh, but my great uh, pleasure to introduce uh, Representative Sean Dooley. Yep, thank you. Thank you for having welcome, me. Welcome. Yeah, yeah. Looking forward to it. As we begin this program, the, the kind of overall subject is uh, the future of the Republican Party and how it uh, may change or stay the same. And uh, other political parties uh, uh, nationwide. To begin with, I'd like to read from the Constitution. It is Article 1 of the Constitution, and it says, Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to remove from office in disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. Whoever would like to begin the discussion, you're welcome to speak up. Well, that's a, a real big tightrope that uh, you have us starting right off. Uh, you do realize it's nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, but, uh, you know, look at uh, the, the nation is uh, in a highly divided time. And uh, we just had the uh, House of Representatives impeach our president uh, for the second time. And it has, I think, all of us uh, taking a look at where the uh, country's headed. And, uh, you know, that was one of the reasons I think we talked about having um, Representative Dooley uh, join us on the show, because uh, he's seen it from the front lines uh, about the direction of the Republican Party, and uh, he took on the uh, challenge of trying to uh, influence uh, the direction of the Republican Party uh, in Massachusetts. So I'd love to let him talk about uh, his experience and what, uh, what he went through and what he tried to do and uh, uh, what his thoughts are on that. Uh, obviously, my, my thoughts are more hyper-focused on the Massachusetts Republican Party, but you know, a week and a half ago, I ran for party chair, and unfortunately, I came up short by three votes. Um, and it was uh, as opposed to, you know, on the national level where we were able to stop the tide and actually keep the hard, hard, hardcore Trumpers out of taking over the leadership role. We, we remained in a highly 
toxic viewpoint from 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 the Republican Party of Massachusetts. Uh, Jim Lyons, who Jeff and I both served with, um, is a complete ideologue, and um, and and is and is very aggressive. Is very divisive and did a lot to damage the Republican Party from a stamp, in, in my opinion. I, I, don't, I don't shirk from my opinion, so. No one's going to quarrel with you on that issue? On yeah. the <laughs> and, you know, he, every single thing that he put out over the past, you know, two years when he got elected chair has been, you know, the evil Democratic Party, the negative Democratic Party, you know, the, all these just, you know, hate-filled rants. It was all about abortion, immigration, you know, the, the blacks were going to come to the suburbs and burn your house down. All this just, you know, just purely crazy rhetoric. My goal was, you know, and if you ever want to loop it into the show, I'll, you know, I'll send over Jeff the link to the video. I did an actual whole website on it. You know, it's called massgopunited.com. Uh, and I produced a video and everything along the way about uniting the party and about going forward on our traditional core beliefs of small government, personal responsibility, fiscal independence, and, and compassion to fellow man, and which is what the Republican Party was founded on. And that's a, an area of the Republican philosophy that, you know, if you don't subscribe to that, you're really not a Republican. So let's go, let's focus on the 80% that we agree on as opposed to this 20% fringe element. Uh, we've gotten to a point in, you know, over the past two years, we went from having um, $8 million into the bank account. We have under 50,000 between both accounts, federal and state now. So we were almost bankrupt. Um, we lost 50% of our Senate you know, with this messaging, and we lost two seats in the House, including North Attleboro, which had been a Republican seat since the Republican Party was founded and came to Massachusetts in 1855. So it's taken a hard right turn. Um, there's a, the people that are in leadership are, you're either with us or you're against us. Uh, they have a purity test, um, which is very dangerous for a party for not welcoming any other thoughts or discussions or debate, you know, one of the problems I have with the, you know, the, the, the current state of affairs in, in Massachusetts on the House side, you know, or in the Senate, you know, having a supermajority is not good for democracy. It's not good for debate. It's not good for uh, making better laws, regardless if it's the Democrats or the Republicans. When one side has all the power, it, it is not good for just basic freedoms. And, and I think that's one of the things that we really need to focus on in the Republican Party is by having this really narrow, narrow focus that if you're not a hardcore Trumper, a hardcore religious right person that you're not welcome, I think spot on from the standpoint of there's a large swath of the population in Massachusetts that doesn't necessarily like where the Democratic Party is going, you know, going much further left. And so the entire middle is being abandoned. So it's very become, becoming very ripe for an independent or a third party. So there in a nutshell, you know, you took on a challenge and, and uh, you know, you're correct that uh, we both served with the... Uh, with the current uh, chair of the Republican state party. And um, he has a tendency to be very antagonistic and uh, standing up and still spewing that rhetoric in the face of what our country is going through right now, I think is a, a horrible direction. And uh, I think, you know, led directly to uh, the discussion we're having this morning. And I'd love to hear from, uh, from my other friends here. And, you know, what do you think of all this? Uh, I think I have a piece that might be interesting um, because it, let's put forward the notion right now also um, that there is the Republican Party. There is also factions on both sides, factions in the Democratic Party, factions in the Republican Party. All of that said, I'm going to read a quote. This was written on August 18, 1792. 
Alexander Hamilton to George Washington. When a man unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, having the ability of military habits, despotic in his ordinary demeanor, known to have scoffed in private at the principles of liberty, when such a man is seen to mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall in with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day, it may be justly suspected that this object is to throw things into confusion, that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. Gee, who are we talking about? <laughs> it's, it's remarkable when I, I hear that and I think, you know, look, at I'm a Democrat, Sean's a Republican, but we probably vote together uh, on, the, on bills probably 75% of the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we have conversations, we have discussions, we like one another, and we do the work together. And, I, you know, it's unfortunate that, Exactly what you just read is happening on the on the national scene, and that's a very interesting and I think very appropriate point. Uh, and actually, it's a throwback to what, as a kid, many many moons ago, I used to witness with regard to politics in this country between Republicans and Democrats, and that is a willingness once elected to work together for the betterment of the people that you're you know that you represent, and. I'm also, uh, and let me throw this out to our guest, because I'm also somewhat concerned that it's not just a matter of having a supermajority that is not necessarily as, uh, as open or democratic as one might hope uh, in terms of governing. But I'm also uh, concerned, too, that when we look at Republicans, juxtapose that to Democrats, we always seem to put that in the context of a binary choice. And I think part of it is not that it's a matter of one party or the other having a supermajority, but I think it's the fact that we don't have differences of opinion with regard to party in terms of just the labels. I mean, I, I really can't ascribe to the, uh, to the definition that you gave of being a Republican uh, in terms of that's the principles of the party. And Democrats have a very similar kind of philosophical platform. Uh, but at the same time, where's the one that where is the platform that looks after or or espounds to look after uh, the interest of working people through labor, similar to what they have in England in terms of the Labor Party, or social justice in terms of a social or economic justice party? Uh, and so what do you think about the idea that maybe it's not a matter of just having a binary choice, but we need to expand all of our choices with regard to party. And then uh, uh, I'd like to hear from my, uh, 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 from my friends on the panel with that uh, as well. Current, in the current situation, I would say you're 100% correct from the standpoint of the, uh, the both, you know, and, it, and it's predominantly because of the, of the primary system and who are, who are activists and who take charge in these sort of things that you get, you're, you're getting the, the activists 
you know, are driving the narrative because of, you know, whether it's the primary or caucus system, whichever, it's, you know, that, that small minority is the ones that are very active or going out and voting and are, and are working in those situations. And the general population doesn't really take note until the, the general election. Um, so I think that's one of the big aspects that we need to really, really kind of work around. But I think you're 100% right, because there's, there are factions within the Democratic Party. You've got the progressives and the Democratic Socialists and the, you know, what are you, Jeff, a communist? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John, it was just, I was, it was I was just, just too easy. It was too I easy. I was just <laughs> warming up to you, my friend. A liberal is not a liberal until he's been called a communist. Yeah, more traditional conservatives, you know, more, you know, more, more, of the, more of the Reagan-esque conservatives. And then we have, you know, the Charlie Bakers and then we have the Jim Lyons and, and we have, you know, and then, and then Trump is, just so we are clear, Trump is not a conservative. You know, if you want to talk about a third party, there's probably the real third party. You know, Agreed. Party because his views are not ever how I was raised or any, any, any readings throughout, you know, throughout history are not Republican in nature. They're not... Lincoln, Roosevelt, Reagan, you know, any of our party leaders, he is, it's all 100% it. So I think, and, and he's created this group, which I think Alliance falls into. It's this, it's almost a demagoguery uh, philosophy. I mean, these people, I, I have come out publicly, you know, conde- you know condemning uh, his actions and especially his, you know, his, his actions and his, and his comments since uh, losing the election. And I'm up to three primary opponents already, and they're all going to bury me. And it's very, very cultish. But, you know, to your point, I think we, are, we would be better served by having uh, more honest party labels from the standpoint of, you know, you, know, you, you look at it, some of the conservative, especially like, a, you know, you, you look at a Southern Democrat compared to Mike Conley from Cambridge to say that they're both part of the same party is ridiculous. You know, and, and the same with, you know, Charlie Baker versus, you know, some Republican from Alabama, you would not consider them to be part of the same party. And we're, we're forced into, especially on the national scale, because it's so, there's so much regional differences that I think that's very, very difficult to correlate. So if we were to have a, like you said, you know, a labor party or, you know, or a center right, center left, you know, far right, far left, conservative, socialist, you know, if we were able to do that and then I think it would serve us better. I think one of the things that works well in England is from the standpoint of they're, they're able to build coalitions. And by building these certain coalitions and having that work together, all the power isn't concentrated on one person or one small team at the top. If their overall team wins, you know, it doesn't become this all or nothing. And if, you know, so if the leadership starts to stray or become too power hungry, the coalition will fall apart and they don't have to wait for four years. Let me jump in as someone who identifies more on the progressive kind of democratic side. And and it's not because of, you know, I don't like titles and I ran for Congress and I didn't actually take that title, although the values that uh, Michael talked about, you know, social justice, climate, you know, I- inclusion, and really thinking about structures in opposition to sort of personal responsibility, but recognizing that the way we have set up our society shapes all our opportunities. It was, you know, the call. I have a problem with with the call for that you know the supermajority is blocks debate and i'll step back and say i grew up in greece in a country where we do have you know as you described coalitions parties having to come together parliament you know and and uh, often governments rolling over within you know two years or three years and and that sort of does create some instability so there is something about the stability here versus there but i do believe that 
um, the language of hate that this administration that Trump has allowed for has made it for people like myself who weren't very political before have stepped in and said, why? Why is there so much hate? And why is the Republican Party allowing for it? And, and I don't mean to be provocative, but it feels like the Democratic Party, even the very far left, are not calling for hate. They're calling for inclusion. They're calling for, you know, what you talked about at the very end of, you know, the principle of compassion. And, and how do those two come together? So I don't know, I'm, this is a little bit of me rambling, but wanting to be on the record to say that I don't think it's the same to talk about the far right and the hatred and the far left on the on the democratic side because somehow the far left and again it's this moral high ground that I'm I'm bringing forward and I don't mean to do that but you know the far left at least is is saying you know how can we make this country work for everyone and and how can someone disagree with that well I, I guess I guess I would counter that from the standpoint of to say you know the, this all or nothing approach that. You know, all the Democrats are doing this kumbaya and are, are, are wonderful and aren't you know, espousing any hate is delusional. I mean, there have been many Democrats that have come out and said, you know, Maxine Waters, you know, they're, they're, and have said very vile and hateful things, especially toward an entire class of people, you know, the Republican you know, Party and people, you know, and if you voted for Trump, then you're, you're a Nazi and all, the, all this sort of very hurtful and untrue. And I think, it, I think the, the aspect that we can say that one party has a moral high ground and the other party is evil is I think very telling from the standpoint of that's what's really dividing this country. If, if you have this, if you have people that say, you know, oh, the Republicans, you know, all defended Trump. And, you know, I, I guess I can point to, you know, a million different instances where we haven't, um, you know, Governor Charlie Baker has been very, very vocal. I've been vocal. A lot of other people have been vocal and I haven't been nowhere close to, you know, what Charlie has. Whenever you put any group into one pot and you're not willing to accept the failings of your own team, which there have been failings. And I'm sorry, but you know, you're, you're not going to convince me otherwise because I've heard this, I've pushed back. If you see them in a restaurant, you, you harass them. You do not let these people go out into public and, 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 you, and you shame them and you taunt them and you, and you yell at them in front of the, you know, with, their, with their spouse and their children and things like that. That divides. I don't care if you think that the end justifies the means, it breeds contempt. Yeah, but aren't we taking politics now you know, I listened to the debate yesterday on the uh, on the impeachment. And like you, I'm concerned on some of the rhetoric on both sides. However, I also try to keep it in context. That's at the national level. Maxine Waters is not my representative. And, you know, I don't know what her particular constituency is or what their life is like, the 750,000 people that she represents. Uh, but I do know that here in Massachusetts, as I look at my Republican friends, I see them differently as than she may see the people that she has to compete with. And isn't part of the problem is that for all of us, all of this gets bubbled up and the image and the visions we have are at the national level. And then people don't listen to one another at the national level because they're always trying to espouse, you know, how it is that my party, again, in the larger sense at the national level, is different from you guys and you guys lie and cheat and we're all you know but that's all at the national level and sometimes i think we project wrongly these individual images and of course we have hate speech on both sides but i would propose that that's more at 
a more concentrated national level than it is at the local. So what do you think about the fact that we really ought to bring the rhetoric down to the local level and let the national politicians do what they want to do? Exactly. And, and I guess as you, were, as you were saying that, one thing that popped to mind that I've, you know, I, I think Jeff and I will both strongly agree on, you know, the biggest problem in all of this, I mean, you know, there's the problem with social media and people that can just, you know, be keyboard warriors and, and it's fed by the national media. But I think the biggest problem, it all devolves down into money. Uh, the, the reality is that real policy doesn't drive donations. It's all emotion-based. You know, if Jeff and I are running against each other and we're, you know, neck and neck, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more center right, he's more center left on a particular issue, you know, it's kind of boring and it doesn't drive anyone to get out their checkbook. But if I say, you know, listen, Jeff wants to let the Taliban to come in here and rape all your children. That's one of the bills he just proposed was the Taliban rape and unicorn bill or whatever. People will get, will get excited and they'll start writing checks. And, and that's what unfortunately drives it and vice versa. I want to put, you know, children in cages and it devolves into that. And, it, and it's because there's so much money into politics. Same with the media. You know, the media is driven on their narrative. People are like, oh, the media is corrupt. I'm like, yeah, they're corrupt, but they're corrupt by money. It's about advertisers. It's, it's, a, it's about creating this national hysteria. So we're not getting honest conversations. We're not getting real discussions. I firmly believe that 80% of America can sit down in a room and be perfectly fine and have perfectly good conversations. And, and you can agree to disagree. One of the times, anytime anybody disagrees with me, I always invite them out to coffee because you know, like you said about Maxine Waters, it's good for me to, you know, I, I grew up a military kid. I lived all over the country. So I have a very different perspective on, on the world. And I'm white and I'm got, you know, got education and a master's and all that other fun stuff. So my life's perspective is very, very different than another person's. And so when you're able to sit down and be like, all right, explain to me your philosophy and what's your, where you're coming from, I might not end up agreeing with them, but I, it might change my perspective. I might be able to look at it from a second, third, and fourth angle, as opposed to what we, we've gotten into this country is that everyone are in their silos. Um, social media, it drives this. The algorithm in Facebook, it, it's designed to, to silo people. And so you start hearing the same rhetoric over and over and over again, and you have people, and it's, and it's frightening that these are elected people in the Republican Party. Granted, it's the state committee, so it's not really, they're not really elected. But, you know, honestly believe that Trump won Massachusetts because they do not know a single person who voted for Biden. We can play around with Nevada and Georgia or whatever, but Massachusetts, really? I mean, and they, but they honestly, honestly believe it. And I don't think it's because they're crazy. I mean, they may be a little crazy, but, you know, I don't think it's purely because they're, you know, head in the sand. I think it's because their world has been so isolated that they don't hear any other perspective. They don't hear any other person. And I think that's one of the, one of the problems that we have. Um, if you want to live in a bubble, you can now live in a bubble, as opposed to when most of us were growing up, the news was you know, more fact-based. I mean, I'm sure it had a little bit of a slant to it, but it, was, it wasn't a 24-hour news cycle. It wasn't pushing narrative constantly. It wasn't trying to outdo the other person. And, and you know, there, there wasn't these scoops. There wasn't these you know, misleading headlines. Things, things were relatively fact-based and people could read and understand and actually spend the time to develop their own opinion as opposed to having a constant barrage of opinions fed to them within their, within their particular silos. I just want to throw in that, uh, you know, I, I've seen uh, some of the national rhetoric uh, make its way into the local scene. I know in my own uh, campaign, in my own races, 
Um, I've seen reports that uh, I voted to increase taxes by 80%. Preposterous. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a mailing that is sent to all the homes in the community. And I get these calls from people saying, how could you do this? I've seen uh, when we did the police reform vote, I, I uh, heard consistent uh, statements that I hate the police and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, when we did the, uh, the Health Care Act, uh, I heard that uh, I was engaged in supporting infanticide. This is all overblown uh, rhetoric, which is absolutely untrue. And it really has led to some incredible divisions at the local level. And I, and I even see it creeping into some of our, you know, our town council and school committee seats. And it's a shame that uh, it, it's descending to these levels. And I try to model in my career, you know, we'll, we'll fight as, uh, as Democrats and uh, Republicans up until the election. But once we're elected and we get put into that body, we take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I take that oath very seriously. And I will work with my partners in the legislature, like uh, Rep. Dooley and so many others, to try to improve the lives of others. That's my goal. And, and, and I, I love the fact that I see the majority of my colleagues are dedicated to that particular task. And people have asked me, what has surprised you most about serving in the legislature? And I tell them it's remarkable to me and comforting to me the level of dedication to democratic principles that most of my colleagues uh, share. And that that doesn't come out in the media reports and it doesn't come out uh, and it's not a headline, but it's a truth that I see each and every day. And, and, and a reason I had no hesitation in reaching out to Rep. Dooley to come and talk on a show like this, because I know we could have a civilized and constructive uh, discussion about what's going on. Uh, but Jeff, aren't you, and uh, Rep. Dooley, aren't both of you really sort of tiptoeing around the bigger issue, which is that at the end of the day, once you're elected, you're right. You hopefully are into a mode of governing. But then the closer you get to re-election, the more you have to start focusing on that, that evil bugaboo, which is money for your next campaign. And right now in this country, we treat elections like a capitalist money-making machine. And that machine has to vacuum up all the dollars it can from every source it can. And some of those dollars come with strings that just wrap around you, that in, especially at the national level, that you really can't uh, let go of. Uh, I'll give you one example that I think, uh, for example, when Natalia uh, was running for Congress, but for the dollars, I, you know, and again, it could be because I was one of her supporters, um, but then, <laughs> you know, full disclosure and transparency to our audience. Okay. But for the dollars, I thought she had one of the best platforms of all of the 15, 17, 12, however many candidates that, you know, there were, but we couldn't get that message out because we didn't have the, have the dollars to create either the illusion that we were viable or the actual by the media to get that message out. So 
isn't one of the things that we need to really take a look at is doesn't the money actually prevent us from getting representatives who have that mindset? Uh, that may you know, be the case, Michael, on the national level. Yeah. Uh, because the, the size of the donations is extraordinarily high uh, at the national level. For example, in Massachusetts, uh, the most I can receive from a lobbyist is $200 a year. I, I know I can speak for Sean that we're not going to be influenced by a $200 donation. Okay. <laughs> but when you're talking, you know, at the federal level, I think uh, individual donations are in the, in the thousands of dollars and, uh, and packs a donation, uh, a $5,000 donation is a common thing. And yeah, I, I truly think that uh, money at the federal level is, is a problem. And, you know, it's why I have supported uh, the, the Citizens United petition to uh, take corporate money out of uh, the uh, election uh, process. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a different landscape financially when you're running for a state senator or a state representative or, or even a governor or any of the other positions in Massachusetts versus the federal level. But, and not oh. Leah, what's your what's your perspective about that? I mean, again, mine was a little bit uh, rather jaundiced in terms of being I a supporter agree. of yours. I agree, Michael. <laughs> I mean, I, I do want to share an anecdote, um, and it was based on Michael's recommendation. We were standing holding signs in Hopkinton, and, and a gentleman came out pretty angry, and he said, I am a Republican. Do you hate me? To me, like pretty confrontational. I said, why would I hate you? I will hopefully represent you. And we sat and spoke for a good 25 minutes. And he agreed with me, even on universal health coverage. You know, he sort of said, at some point, I'm ready to go there. But he talked about job loss. He talked about, you know, his issues. And then he gave me his number. He said, can you please call me? And I called him that night. And he said, you know, the fact that you would call me, the fact that you're listening to me, even though I'm on the other side. And he donated $1,000. I mean, that's a huge donation that evening. And he said... I hope you make it Give through. me and Sean his number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will. I will. I have it. And then he sent me a book, too. And he said, you know, I want politicians like you because you will listen to me. And similarly, you know, I grew up in a family, a very religious household. So I'm able to have conversations with people who have fears around, you know, abortion and, and trying to be that person who listens. But it's true. The finances overall is hard. And as a Greek American, I had, you know, the Greek American community is quite Republican. So a lot of Republican donors, actually, but they were able to sort of, they didn't, they it sat with me and then they would kind of fight with me about policy. And then they say, yeah, but you're, you know, a young Greek American woman, we need role models for our daughters, here's some money. So that was, I was kind of torn to be taking it, but I knew that that was the case. But that's just to say that, you know, people, the average person, they may support a leader who doesn't fit into these clear-cut categories. You know, they may have, you know, in the midst of a COVID pandemic, several more conservative voters said to me, you know, listen, I usually, I'm an independent in Massachusetts, but you're a scientist and you're a public health expert and I need someone like you. And, and they're more willing. So that flexibility that we see in the electorate, we don't see in our politics. And, and I don't know. I don't know how and whether it's a third party, whether it's independence, whether, you know, it's ranked choice voting, one more side note, as a woman, as a young woman running, there was a lot of hatred on like social media, you know, on our Facebook site, so much hatred. Um, and I think it is both racialized. So I think if I were a black woman, it would have racial undertones. As a woman, there was a lot of sexism, a lot of, you know, 
you know, calls for rape and things like that, that I think men and white men don't experience. And I don't know if that kind of hatred also discourages people from diverse backgrounds from running. So finances is one thing, but recognizing that this kind of brutal rhetoric also means that we have a less representative government. And, and we should find ways to work through that too. Going back to what I read at the beginning of the program, it's suggesting that if Donald Trump is impeached, he would not be able ever to run again for president or to hold office. A couple of things around that. One, does that encourage Republican senators to impeach him, to get him out of the party? And secondly, how in Massachusetts does that affect the Republican and Democratic parties and thoughts? And third, we're all aware that companies have decided not to give political contributions to uh, political candidates. Uh, the issue of him not being able to run again is actually a separate question from the trial and his being found guilty. He first has to go through the trial and then he has to be found guilty before that penalty can be imposed. And it's not automatic. Uh, what I read seems to say it was automatic. I what I read from the Constitution, if I'm a judge that reads the Constitution as written, it seems to imply that he can't. Agreed. But apparently the way that that's been interpreted, uh, now I could be, uh, you, you know, we could have a challenge and we all could be find out, Frank, that you're 100% correct. But right now, the interpretation, as I'm reading it from both the legal scholars as well as some, some of the commentary from some of the senators and House of Representative members, is that the first piece is his being found guilty, and then the and the reason that penalty could be imposed, or the way that that penalty can be imposed, is if the Senate then votes, and it's only a majority, you don't need a two-thirds for that, to impose that particular penalty upon him. Yeah, and I would say this, no matter what happens, if there is some penalty meted out at the end of a, an impeachment trial, I guarantee you this question will make its way up to the United States Supreme Court, and we will get a definitive answer to your question, uh, Frank. I think the, these are understandings and interpretations that people have given to the, that particular language, but it's never been clarified because it's never been invoked never and it's never been tested. I say, let's save this for a show about two years from now, because that's how long <laughs> it's going to take uh, to uh, wind its way uh, through the system. You know, in the meantime, you, you know, I'd like to also let me read this uh, uh, this particular quote, too, because there's something I hope else. you stopped and you're not driving as you're reading. Oh, uh, uh, 70 miles an hour. I'm still going right down. The <laughs> no, I am very responsible. Uh, I am a, stopped at a rest area on I-77, Arledale uh, County. But let me read this particular quote to you. Uh, this is from George Washington, uh, Washington, and it's from his farewell address, uh, Saturday, September the 17th, 1796. And here's uh, what he says. However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Now, when, 
Washington was saying this. He's leaving office. And there are two things to be real cognizant about here. One, one of the things that the Constitution does not mention at all are political parties. And I've said this before as part of our construct here and our discussion. The political parties are constructed by, starting with, uh, you know, the early political parties, by men in order to concentrate power in a particular fashion. And that has been carried out in this country and stuff over the years. Third parties are not unheard of. We have had third and fourth parties. There are some states with multiple parties. I think uh, back in my days living in New York, where there, I think, are seven or eight registered parties. It is important, I think, for us to realize that when we look at Republican, even the demise of the Republican Party in the context of history is not a bad thing. Similar to the breakup of the Democratic Party in the context of history is not necessarily a bad thing. And I'm beginning to evolve in my thinking in terms of something that you and Rep Dooley both mentioned, which is that there are already these various philosophies inside of our parties. And the question becomes, why don't we expose those more to the general public, even in our primaries, to have someone who says, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a progressive Democrat. Uh, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a social justice Democrat. So that people know what it is that they're getting when they're voting for a particular candidate. Your thoughts, folks. There is a, a certain Democrat that was identified known as a Songus Democrat, socially progressive, fiscally conservative, which is an interesting position. And as we all know, Paul Songus was certainly highly, highly respected here in Massachusetts. And I think that the news media does have a tendency to frame certain candidates. Frank and I were talking about uh, an earlier issue, and I think, Frank, this is a good one to, to, to jump into here because it's related to that of men are garnering power and shaping parties. Yeah, we have had third-party candidates. Uh, oftentimes, they've been regarded as spoilers. That's an interesting turn of phrase. And, and some of them, I think, were you know, well-principled. I mean, Ross Perot was going to get under the hood and fix things. And he ran you know, with quite a bit of uh, notoriety as a third-party candidate, just to name one. And there have been many. In 2016, notably, as the Republican primary was just beginning to take shape, there was an overt threat by Donald Trump to say, look, if the Republican Party doesn't embrace me, I'm going to run as a third-party independent candidate. And the Republican Party was forced into a difficult, difficult choice. Do we give him a bear hug, put our arms around this guy, and let him run as a Republican and support that? Or do we distance ourselves from the extreme rhetoric and the hate and how he besmirches all the other candidates and let him run amok? Either way, he was a bull in a china shop whether it's our China shop or another independent China shop, there's going to be a lot of broken glass. So that was an interesting dynamic in the early days of the Republican primary back then. Well, I will uh, jump in. First of all, I want to say, uh, Michael, the piece that you read from George Washington tied in very nicely with the piece that uh, Peter had read at the beginning of this program. One thing I learned from watching the play Hamilton is uh, how much Alexander Hamilton did writing for George Washington. So it's not, 
surprising uh-huh. to me that uh, that sounded quite similar. <laughs> right. But uh, to your point, exposing more about parties, I can tell you those types of things happen in other communities. For example, my colleagues who uh, serve in Cambridge and Boston will never face a Republican opponent in their races. All of their races are primaries. So they're active in September. And there you have the discussion uh, about whether that uh, person is progressive enough. It's amazing to watch these primaries. It's going to be highly unlikely that I will ever face a challenger from the left in the communities of Franklin and Medway, um, because we are known as purple communities. And if you look at my particular district, for example, uh, there's only one precinct in my entire district. And now I have uh, eight precincts in Franklin, three precincts in Medway. I can only travel through one of those precincts and remain in democratic turf. Every other precinct brings me into a Republican represented community. So you have to take the uh, area of the Commonwealth that you represent. So we may not see that type of a primary in Franklin, Massachusetts, but I assure you those types of discussions and primaries are taking place in the areas surrounding uh, major metropolitan places in Massachusetts. Well, my thoughts are with Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt was very smart in uh, leaving the Republican Party forming the Bull Moose Party. Ross Perot, you already talked about. I think Ralph Nader made a poor choice in being a third-party candidate. But I I like the idea of third-party candidates. And in Massachusetts, we have the Rainbow Party and the Libertarian Party. Both of those are somewhat active. Locally, I would like to see the Independent Party, which hasn't been active for a number of years, and I think only a years ago proposed a candidate for uh, U.S. Congress and for governor and lieutenant governor. But third-party candidates, I think, can muster a particular segment of the population to get behind them. One of the problems with third-party candidates is what Trump has exposed, charisma. If you get a third-party candidate with the charisma to get a hold of the whole spectrum of people to follow him, regardless of what he's saying, that is very dangerous. But if you break up some of these Republican and Democratic parties into parties that can represent more clearly and better uh, their position, I think that would be a good future for the United States. The other thing, I guess, about third parties in, in general is money. And if businesses hold true to the fact that they're not going to donate money, and if major donors are going to pull back on donating huge, huge sums to one party or the other, then I think the possibility of third parties could return if the internet is controlled by the FCC in the sense that it it will eliminate some of this hate speech and direct action toward individuals. The other night, Channel 2 had a wonderful program on uh, conspiracy. 
they had a whole hour program. Watch this Channel 2 uh, conspiracy program, if it is again. You know, it's interesting you talk about uh, the third parties. Let me give you a few uh, things to chew on. Angus King has done very successfully. He's a senator from the state of Maine mm-hmm. uh, who has run as an independent. Uh, he happens to caucus with the Democrats when he gets down to Washington. But uh, on the state level, I, I know a couple of colleagues who have run as independents and have been elected but quickly align with the party once they get into the body. Uh, right now, we have one. Uh, independent who uh, used to be a Republican, and uh, she left the Republican Party and and has run successfully as an independent and remains uh, independent to this day. But uh, two years ago, uh, we had a a first-termer who was a very progressive Democrat from uh, Amherst and ended up leaving the Democratic Party because he didn't think that the Democrats in Massachusetts were progressive enough. So he left and he ran as an independent out in Amherst and he became a one-term state representative because Amherst did not want uh, an independent candidate. So here's an incumbent who ended up losing his seat because he traveled on the road to independency. So again, it's one of those things that really depends on the district or area that you represent. Whereas Maine embraces and welcomes an independent candidate in Angus King. And I I know that uh, 60 Minutes did a a spot on him uh, recently uh, and talks about that issue. But, uh, you know, in in the Massachusetts House, it's not been a successful pathway. He wasn't an independent in Maine when he was governor, right? Angus King, yeah. He was governor of Maine at one point, wasn't he? Yes, he was, as an independent. And let's not forget the uh, 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 the consummate independent, Bernie Sanders, Vermont. And I would love, uh, especially being a, a bona fide progressive, Natalia, uh, <laughs> I, I would love that your thoughts about, even as a progressive, if you were to, let's say, have an independent run and you win, then when you get to the office or you get to the seat, at that particular point in time, in most legislatures, you're now back to a binary choice. Uh, well, actually, you do have a third choice. You could always caucus by yourself if you're the only one as an independent. But then I think, uh, as Jeff said, once you get there, now you've got to make a decision of who do you caucus with. Looking forward, obviously, this notion of independence, third parties, uh, where Trump is currently, I want to read another little passage here. The right has changed dramatically over the past decade, radicalized from the ground up, both in substance and style, and grown noticeably militant. Now, President Trump claimed the Tea Party still exists, except now it's called Make America Great Again. He overtly claims to have gotten in front of that parade and taken ownership of it. But it was a parade that was already beginning to march and came to the surface through people like Sarah Palin prior. And so looking forward at this point, assuming that a simple majority in the Senate takes a vote to keep him from running again. Well, they can't do that until they uh, vote to impeach. Correct. Uh, The impeachment obviously requires two thirds to reaffirm the fact that he can't run again as a simple majority. Let's just assume that all of that plays out. 
if, in fact, he's not eligible to run again, and Republicans do their best to remove his oxygen, that means that he is still going to have this messianic sway over enough people that it really hollows out a group of people who have, up until now, classed themselves as extreme right-wing Republicans. So where does the Republican Party get the energy to survive into the future with clearly somewhere between 30 to 40 percent of a strong base gone? There are uh, warning signs out there saying, yeah, you may see Trump get out of the way or move on or be prohibited from holding office again. But there is a strong body of people, over 70 million people uh, did vote for him that have to be heard and have to be reckoned with. And uh, the movement won't die. You know, it's up to us to exercise some degree. I think I talked about this in the last program, some degree of empathy to try to understand it and try to work with these folks, because uh, at the end of the day, they are Americans as much as, uh, as I and uh, people who see the world as I do are Americans, and uh, we need to coexist and work together for the common good. Well, I think it's even much more uh, right in our face evident that the Republican Party is not going to go away. I mean, let's really drill this down to the local level. There are local levels of, uh, of groups of Republicans, activists, state committees, uh, especially in those quote-unquote red states. Alabama Republicans are not going to go away. Mississippi Republicans are not going to go away just because Trump uh, is cut off at the pass. So in that respect, it really is what's the Republican Party going to evolve to? Because it's still going to be there. True that. Now, even though potentially Trump might not be eligible for office again, he is a kingmaker. And I think that the king in the wing is probably going to be, for him, Don Jr., I put that out there for consideration. Ouch. Well, I think there are a lot of Republican governors and state reps and others, as well as Republicans who are in the Senate and the House right now who may stand up against that. And I understand that Trump uh, may have some influence, but I think his influence is going to quickly wane, um, is my particular perspective at this point. As soon as these other people uh, find the backbone to start standing up and start scratching out their own territory for their next presidential run. My big concern is going to be what's going to happen at the local level, the state and local level with regard to Trumpism, because there are some places, uh, for example, take Jim Johnson's district in Ohio. How a guy like Jim Johnson keeps getting reelected is something that I think is, is prone for study, because here's a guy who is absolutely a Trump supporter, absolutely has this divisive kind of rhetoric about him, and yet he has been reelected under Trump twice now. So I think, again, our concern, albeit here in Franklin, should be to try to make sure that our people are well-versed in terms of the issues, in terms of understanding what the individual as well as political differences are uh, of their representatives. But when we move outside of Massachusetts, I think it's important for us just to pay attention to what's going on, to try to listen as we can to both the national as well as social media rhetoric that's out there. Because I think, as you're saying, Jeff, it's important for us to understand our fellow Americans. Can I just interject? The You're the host of the show. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> about the Democratic Party. Right now, 
if you make $175,000, you're still going to get some money. You might not get the $600 or $2,000. That cuts off at $7,500. I think the Democratic Party is moving to the party of the businesses and abandoning the people that really need the money. As one who has supported Obviously, I have nothing to do with the stimulus checks that come out of the federal government, but uh, I have been very supportive of uh, businesses, be they small businesses or, or large manufacturers in the Commonwealth, because I do view them as uh, job creators and giving opportunities for people to advance themselves in our society. And particularly on the small business owners, we have ordered them to either close their businesses or substantially reduce the capacity or the number of customers that can come into their store. When we make an order of that magnitude, I think we have a responsibility to provide them with the financial resources that they need to keep the business up and running and keep people employed. Because to the extent that they shut down their business and lay off all these employees, then they turn to our unemployment system. And, and that system has been overwhelmed in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I'm sure the same for around the country. It's an incredibly delicate balance. The other piece, and I've been heavily involved in supporting the manufacturing industry in Massachusetts, because uh, when you look at the history of Massachusetts, there have been you know several industrial revolutions, and those are creating uh, new opportunities. What we're seeing today are a lot of companies uh, moving to robotics and a lot of activities in these uh, factories are being done by people who uh, used to be like my grandfather who uh, worked in a factory out in Whitensville, Massachusetts. Those jobs don't exist anymore. And what we need are skilled workers who can talk to the computers to tell those robots uh, what to do and how to do their jobs. So we need a whole new class of skilled uh, workers out there. And uh, you get that by the education process. So it's not as simple as uh, me saying I shouldn't support business. I think what I'm doing is uh, supporting a business that in the, at the end of the day is giving an opportunity to that uh, person who may be underprivileged or poor an opportunity to participate in our economy and have a job to go to because uh, I think a job gives a lot of power to people and a lot of sense of uh, self-worth and an opportunity to participate on a day-to-day -day basis. Jeff, can you give the state definition of a small business? It depends on who you ask, but I'll give you my definition of a small business, and that's a mom-and-pop shop that uh, employs under 20 or 25 people. And I can tell you, 75% of the manufacturers in Massachusetts employ under 20 people. That's a, an absolutely amazing statistic. Those are small businesses. As uh, we're winding down, does anyone have some uh, closing thoughts? I am really troubled by uh, by what's happening, especially in the last two weeks. It looks like on Thursdays, the last two Thursdays, the next Thursday, if we're back on again, uh, will be the telling tale. But last week we had the uh, the takeover of the Capitol building. This week we had the day before our discussion, the impeachment for the second time of our president. The future next Thursday it will be after the inauguration and the uh, ushering in of a new administration. So right now I'm looking forward to how can 
I think this new administration start to change the trajectory of our country, because right now I don't think we're on the right path. But I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think things can be changed with better leadership, better organization. So I'm looking forward to that. I think where we're looking at turning our eyes forward at this point, even in the next week to month, to Dr. Mike's point, I think it's going to be an interesting time in the Senate. There's an understatement. But just as the House moved swiftly to put forward an article of impeachment, I think it is possible for the Senate to move fairly yet swiftly with respect to a trial that need not be the 87, 21 days or whatever it is. I think the trial could literally be less than a week and still be reasoned, balanced, and fair. Part of the reason for that is this was all experienced in the first person. All of the people in the legislature are as much witnesses and victims as well as judge and jury all at the same time. There is very little hearsay to be had here. That trial need not be lengthy, and we could still have the Senate do a responsible job of coming to a conclusion in short order and then moving about the nation's business quickly. I think that would be a best outcome. If they kept it short and sweet, that would be a very good thing. James Comey made an interesting observation. He said that he would rather the lights go out on the Trump administration, which is the greatest punishment he could have. He envisions Trump standing on the lawn at Mar-a-Lago yelling at passing cars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, amen, I say to both of you. I certainly look forward to chatting again next week. This is uh, Frank Falvey for Toward a More Perfect Union. I would like to thank PJ. I would like to thank Natalia Lanus. I'd like to thank Michael Walker-Jones. I'd like to thank uh, particularly uh, Jeff Roy for... uh, introducing us to our special guest today, a representative, Sean Dooley from Norfolk. So thank you all for being part of this program. And uh, we look forward to our listeners tuning in again next week for a continuation of Toward a More Perfect Union. And if you have an opinion and you would like to share that with us, you can contact us at info, I-N-F-O, at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. For Frank, Jeff, Dr. Mike, Natalia, and our guest Sean Dooley, I'm Peter J. Thanks for joining us. This is Franklin Public Radio.